This is Make It Okay Stories, the podcast brought to you by the Iowa Healthy Estate Initiative. Make It Okay is a community campaign to reduce stigma by starting conversations and increasing understanding about mental illness. In this podcast, you'll hear from Iowans who want to share their personal stories of living with mental illness in an effort to reduce stigma for others. This episode features Ann Harris-Carter, a corporate leader and community volunteer who is diagnosed with bipolar type 2. Before we hear from Ann, we'd like to take a moment to thank Business Solver for supporting this podcast. Since 1998, Business Solver has delivered market-changing benefits technology and services supported by an intrinsic responsiveness to client needs. The company creates client programs that maximize benefits program investment, minimize risk exposure, and engage employees with easy-to-use solutions and communication tools to assist them in making wise and cost-efficient benefits selections. Founded by HR professionals, Business Solver's unwavering service-oriented culture and secure SaaS platform provide measurable success in its mission to provide complete client delight. Learn more and download a suite of free resources to assist you in promoting mental health in the workplace at businesssolver.com. Thank you, Business Solver. Now it's time to hear from Anne. My name is Anne, and I live in Cedar Rapids, where I was born and raised. I was away from Iowa for college and career, mostly east of the Mississippi River. I moved back in 2012, and this is my story. I closed the office door. I couldn't stop the tears, and I couldn't breathe. Is this what it means to have a nervous breakdown? I walked from the door to my desk slowly. It felt like I was stuck in time, unable to think straight and unable to think beyond that moment. Something prompted me to call my sister-in-law, a doctor. To this day, I do not recall what I said or what details I had previously shared. The reality was I had been weepy at work for weeks, actually months. I will always remember her response, however. I'm calling David. He needs to pick you up from work. David, her brother, was my husband. David took me directly to an urgent care facility. It was my lucky day, or those were the words more or less of the doctor. Turns out, he had emergency room experience with a background in psychiatry. He had me complete a short questionnaire. Upon review of my responses, he declared the diagnosis, bipolar type 2. Are you kidding me? Based on a worksheet that reminded me of the game 20 questions, the doctor was able to identify such a serious illness? Really? He prescribed a mood stabilizer, encouraged me to see my primary care physician as soon as possible, and sent me home. So what was I to do? Go home and relax? Go home and cry? Go home and act as if nothing was wrong and nothing had happened? Go home and do laundry? That scenario happened to me in 2008, 13 years ago this month. At the time, bipolar was a very scary word for me 
I was horrified. It seemed any story I had ever heard involved a celebrity who had gone off the rails in a manic episode or battled with depression and died by suicide. Bipolar is a brain disorder that causes shifts between high and low moods. With bipolar 2, the high moods are characterized by hypomania and the low moods are characterized by depression. While bipolar 2 can look like depression, the treatment is different. In fact, treating bipolar 2 solely with antidepressants can trigger mania or hypomania. If only I had known then what I have learned since the diagnosis, I would certainly have benefited from treatment sooner. Prior to the diagnosis, I thought the root cause of my mood changes was PMS, premenstrual syndrome, because the up and down swings were so cyclical. I spiraled into pity parties so often that I figured feeling down was par for the course. I did not discuss it with my doctors and did not imagine my cycles were noticeably different from what others experienced. Instead, I spent years thinking I needed to power through because that's what smart, strong, successful women do. Immediately following the diagnosis, I all but insisted my situation was temporary. After all, there were certainly plenty of life stressors, family dynamics, years of an out-of-state commute, church obligations, building our dream home. I continued to seek a doctor who would affirm my condition was merely a passing hormonal issue for a woman of a certain age. Perhaps I was hoping for some reassurance that I was not crazy. The notion of being crazy created an ongoing sense of shame and embarrassment. For the first 10 years of taking medication, I hid my diagnosis in both my personal and professional life. I discussed very few details with those closest to me, and I told very few people outside my family. Work is where I faked it the most, since I had already grown accustomed to dealing with inconveniences. How do you hide tissues when you don't have pockets? How many times can you step out of a meeting without drawing attention to yourself? How quickly can you hide red and swollen eyes by splashing cool water on your face? What's better, to remain in a meeting with your head down, perhaps tears in your eyes, or to leave a meeting and explain later? I have to admit, I was proud of my career accomplishments, part of senior leadership in a Fortune 200 company, meeting with students, faculty, and administrators from leading universities around the country, and traveling coast to coast to deliver presentations and keynote speeches. The stigma felt oppressive and silence felt safe. I absolutely perceived that bringing my whole self to work would jeopardize all that I had achieved. I told myself, I can't say anything. It will ruin my reputation, my career, my family, my entire life. I will be seen as a failure. I am a failure and everyone will know. 
Ironically, it was work where I discovered the toll of hiding my diagnosis. A workshop sponsored by my company involved much needed self-reflection, prompting me to consider how I showed up at work, how I showed up at home, and how those two aspects of my life intersected and impacted my effectiveness. Not only was I hiding my diagnosis, but I was using a tremendous amount of energy doing so. I gradually confided in coworkers that knew me well, and guess what? I learned I was not the only one with bipolar type 2. And I heard stories about others dealing with depression and anxiety. Those one-on-one -on -one conversations with coworkers gave me courage and created safe space at work. Where I had once been uncomfortable myself with a diagnosis and concerned about making others uncomfortable, I focused instead on learning what, how, and when to share. I shared my story at an event sponsored by a women's group at work. I shared my story at a church conference. I shared my story at a community forum. And each time I shared my story, I not only felt encouraged, but empowered. My journey with bipolar II is not over, but a combination of medication, therapy, and support from loved ones makes a remarkable difference in my quality of life. My psychiatrist focuses on medication management. My therapist focuses on behavior management. My family and friends understand when I am vulnerable in day-to-day -day interactions. Faith and self-care are also priorities for me. My profession of faith means trusting I am equipped to live through this and thrive. Self-care means I track my sleep, my exercise, my meals, and my moods daily. That tracking helps me see when I am at my best and on occasion has indicated that a medication adjustment was necessary. I used to be afraid that medication would mean not being myself. But a friend reframed that thought by saying, the meds allow you to be a truer version of yourself. One of the first psychiatrists I saw said I would take medication for the rest of my life. I did not appreciate his words at the time, nor do I necessarily believe his words are the final answer. For now, however, I am grateful for the opportunities to share what I am learning on this journey. Based on statistics, most of us know at least one person who is struggling with a form of mental illness. Please believe me when I say getting help is critical. For me, that call to my sister-in-law saved my life. Just one call. I cannot change the years I delayed getting help and dealing more openly with my diagnosis. I hope that by hearing me speak out now, others will not delay. It's way too easy to tell ourselves false narratives. I'm not that bad, or I can handle this. We live in a society that reinforces those narratives. Just deal with it or get over it. 
But I can offer my testimony now because I know how detrimental stigma can be. When we normalize the conversation, we get rid of the demeaning labels. When we normalize the conversation, we are not afraid to speak up. When we normalize the conversation, we make it easier to seek help and easier to offer support. Thank you for making it okay. Thank you, Anne. You can read more stories just like Anne's on the stories page of the Make It Okay website. Find it at makeitokay.org backslash Iowa. Bipolar disorder, type 1 and type 2, are common. Here to tell us more about these conditions is Dr. Brent Seaton with Mercy One. This is Dr. Brent Seaton, and I'm a clinical neuropsychologist at Mercy One. The more we can understand mental illness and common conditions, the more we can talk about it, reduce stigma, and make it okay. I am here to share some common signs, symptoms, and treatments for a condition you just heard about, bipolar 2. Studies suggest that about one in every 250 adults develops bipolar 2. The rate might be higher, as much as 3 to 4% amongst adolescents. Bipolar 2 is diagnosed when an individual has a history of a major depressive episode and at least one episode of hypomania. Symptoms of hypomania include inflated sense of self-esteem, decreased need for sleep, increased talkativeness, racing thoughts, distractibility, and involvement in risky behaviors that might include problematic interpersonal conduct or excessive spending. Bipolar 2 differs from bipolar 1 in that people with bipolar 2 have no history of a manic episode. While the definitions of manic and hypomanic episodes are similar, manic episodes are characterized by more intense symptoms with increased likelihood of serious psychosocial consequences, legal problems, erratic behaviors, and or psychiatric hospitalization. Because of this, people with bipolar 2 tend to have fewer problems socially and vocationally than people with bipolar 1. People with bipolar 2 are at risk for other problems, including anxiety and use of substances. Those with bipolar 2 might not always recognize the ways in which their symptoms are causing them and those around them problems. During episodes of hypomania, individuals might feel more cheerful, creative, and productive. Because of this, they might be hesitant to seek help. People with bipolar 2 might be more likely to seek help during depressive versus hypomanic episodes. Bipolar 2 is treatable. It is important for treatment of those with bipolar 2 to be individualized. Common treatments for bipolar 2 include medications like antidepressants and mood stabilizing agents. Psychotherapy can be utilized to assist patients, particularly in terms of reducing depression helping them cope with stress as effectively as possible, and developing means for regulating their emotions. If you or someone you know is experiencing symptoms of bipolar 2, it is important to keep in mind that bipolar 2 is a treatable problem associated with changes in the brain. Bipolar 2 is nobody's fault or personal weakness. At the same time, it is important to seek help when a problem is recognized. Everyone benefits from more education and understanding of bipolar 2. Be proactive in the treatment of your bipolar 2. Ask questions when information is not clear and work hard to comply as fully as possible with the treatment plan agreed upon with your treating professional. We need to provide those with bipolar 2 with love and support 
as well as reassurance that treatment can be helpful to them. It is important to keep in mind that at any given time, we are all doing the best that we can with the tools that we have. By reaching out for support from loved ones and professionals, people with bipolar two can do very well and continue to work toward their life goals. Thank you, Dr. Seaton, for helping us better understand these conditions. And special thanks to Mercy One for providing the segments from your mental health care experts. While mental illnesses are common and treatable, many people are still afraid to talk about mental illness due to shame, misunderstanding, negative attitudes, and fear of discrimination. The goal of Make It Okay is to end the stigma. To learn more about Make It Okay, visit makeitokay.org backslash Iowa for resources, including tips for talking about mental illness and links to become a Make It Okay ambassador or get your workplace involved. We've also got links to mental health support and crisis lines if you or someone you know is struggling with mental illness. Want to help us stop the stigma? Take the online pledge to Make It Okay. You can find it at makeitokay.org backslash Iowa. Thank you for listening to this episode of Make It Okay Stories, the podcast. Please share this podcast with your family, friends, and colleagues. Together, we can make it okay. This podcast is supported by Business Solver.